welcome to the Jew 3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And today we have a very special guest, uh, Sho Baraka. Welcome, Sho. Well, thank you for having me, Lisa. <laughs> thank is everybody you. special when you introduce them or is it just me? Was I the only special guest? I kind of do that to everyone. Maybe okay, I should. So, then, so nobody's it. special. Excellent. Got you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Uh, interesting. Today, these days, I am uh, a little bit of uh, many different things. I confuse myself oftentimes, but most people will probably know me as a recording artist. I've been recording music professionally for about eight years now. Mm-hmm. Um, I started off um, with a Christian record label, Reach Records. Um, within the last three, four years, I've branched off and kind of become more of an independent artist and done my own thing. Uh, I'm also, at one point in time, was a seminary student. Uh, kind of put that on hold to pursue other educational pursuits potentially will be teaching at a college pretty soon on um, hip hop and kind of like the uh, aesthetics of hip hop and music business and things of that nature um also kind of like a social thought leader social entrepreneur if you will and uh father husband man who loves the lord um um oftentimes messes up ways on how to communicate and practice that but <laughs> Is struggling and trying to become more diligent and and uh, being a, a faithful servant. So that's kind of like a, just a quick overview of who I am, I guess you can say. Uh, originally from California, uh, live in Atlanta right now, and um, attend. Yeah, there you go. You know what I'm saying? So uh, yeah, that's that's it. That's that's who I am. I think a little later as we get to talk, I'll kind of give some. Details about my life and how I got to where I am, but yep. That's what's up. Um, I've always uh, kind of followed your music, so it's cool to uh, actually be having a conversation. But this conversation for the oh. listeners will <laughs> will probably be a little different because everybody's probably always asking you about specific things in your career. Uh, we want to talk about the intersection of art and apologetics, and um, what are some things that you see as that are pertinent for African-Americans in relationship to apologetics? Well, that's a, that's a good question. And I think it's not a question that I think is answered enough. I think there's two different, I guess you could say onslaughts that we deal with. Um, there is the, from, there's the onslaught from the progressive side, kind of like the very liberal progressive. Um, there's a, there's a whole new kind of culture within I guess you can say a postmodern black culture that's that's emerging right now in the academic world, um, even um, kind of say the LGBT community mm-hmm. that is affecting a lot of the ways that the African-American uh, church is acting, responding, thinking, processing. Um, it's affecting its activism. It's, pre- pre- it's affecting a lot of just different things. So it's, there's that 
uh, I guess you can say onslaught is as far as the that that needs an apologetic that's communicated. But um, the one that I think I find myself um, more engaged in is the apologetic from what some will call uh, African American or Black cults, Black religions, and that as well has very little. Uh, there's not a lot of resources. There's not a lot of platform leaders who you find addressing that onslaught, which is kind of like, uh, you know, 5% nation, nation of Gaza and Earth, the nation of Islam. Well, there's a lot of people who who address the nation of Islam because there's a lot of history. There's a lot of resources out there about them. But, you know, you talk about Moorish Science Temple, Hebrew Israelites, uh, Black Medic Science. Um so those 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 religions, when you when you think about um, their emergence in the African American community, there is not a lot of resources. Um, I have personal friends who've dabbled in that stuff, who either studied alongside with those individuals who are Christians now, or um, or who were Christians when they studied just for the purposes of getting acquainted with it, who often speak out. But there's no, but they themselves don't have any resources out. But there are people who are working towards it. But I find it as a great obstacle, uh, a great problem for the black church today. Because when you go on black campuses, uh, HBCUs, when you go to black epicenters like the DCs, the New York, the Atlantas, um, Chicago's, what you'll find is um, a lot of people aren't concerned with white mainstream evangelical problems in the church. The things that they're struggling with are the things that one, white evangelicals never addressed, two, things that black evangelicals are struggling to address, and that is usually the identity of the black man and woman. Um, what is the importance of blackness? What is kind of like black consciousness? Uh, what is spirituality in the black context? And the good thing, um, I guess that you can say that these religions and these cults have done is they've given answers to this and they've given answers that are ba uh, that are very uh, ethnocentric and the church has failed to do that. Um, and so one of the things that I'm trying to uh, that I would love to do sometime in the near future, along with my buddies, is to be able to com create a, a, a kind of a, a counter uh, attack or kind of like a rebuttal to a lot of the answers that they're given that we feel are more biblical. Amen. Um, I think that's a, a great assessment. How often do you in your time in Atlanta and just throughout your life, how often do you run into um, a people who are in those movements? Well, I will say it's, it's, it's almost every day now, uh, and it's not necessarily people on the street that I run into. It's mainly most of my interaction or either with friends or family members um, that I have conversations with or people on uh, social media. So Facebook um, is is notorious for passing videos and articles and people share their thoughts. And, I, and a lot of friends I went to high school with and people I went to college with hold a lot of these beliefs. A lot of them believe that um, Christianity is an, uh, you know, is an archaic slave religion, that it was created to keep African Amer Africans docile and and uh, emasculated. And that it was used to to rob the continent of its resources, of its dignity. Mm -hmm. um, and so they perpetuate these thoughts and these ideas and their evidence to the um, just different individuals across 
the, the I guess you could say the social media landscape who, who who put videos out there who communicate these things and the problem is the, <laughs> and this is where I get greatly frustrated the problem is is that some of the best African American Christian thinkers are worried about addressing white evangelical problems rather than addressing issues that I think are turning our brothers and sisters away from the true and living God um, and so I'll have conversations with brothers like literally I had a, a conversation. I think it was two, two, three weeks ago with a brother who hit me up via, via Facebook. And we, we hadn't talked regularly maybe in the last 10 years, but we were really good friends maybe 12 years ago. And every now and then we would see each other when I would visit his particular city. And he hit me up. And uh, this is a strong brother in the Lord. And he hit me up like uh, a month ago telling me that he's becoming um, a Hebrew Israelite. And then two weeks ago, we had a long conversation on the phone about his beliefs and why he felt. Now, to his credit, he did say I was somewhat of his last line of defense um, or I was his last hope. Better yet, I was his last hope to not fully emerge himself into that. And that, you know, just feel the problem, feeling the pressure like, brother, if I'm your last hope. (laughs) 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 Uh, Go ahead. Nah. But I, you know, I prayed and I just, you know, we had a long conversation and we talked and it was really helpful and we're going to continue the dialogue. He's going to sh- send me some scriptures and he's going to send me some resources and I'm going to try my best to refute them. But this is the kind of stuff that I'm engaging in every day. I had a cousin or I have a cousin who was on Facebook and he gave this long tirade about how Af- how Christianity uh, was a stolen religion from Africa uh, I mean, from Egypt and how the Bible's fake. It was made up. It was made by white men and all this other stuff. And that is no credibility. And then, you know, I went behind him and I and I kind of refuted each point that he made. And a lot of this stuff is very simple stuff. It's not it, this is not stuff that hasn't been refuted or, or researched before. A lot of it is just that I think most times um, the church has done a terrible job of giving identity and dignity to the black man and to the black woman. And so in doing that, uh, a lot of these religions and cultures have, uh, or cults have come behind and, and, and answered those questions, those de- desperate and, and uh, dire needs that have been laid out, prostrate on the table like, hey, I need to know who I am. I need to know my, my history. I need to know uh, why I'm important in, in this universe. And because the Christianity has been used for some very heinous acts. I think a lot of, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people have used that to manipulate and push their own agenda, even though there is information out there that will say otherwise, that Christianity is an African religion. If we want to be honest with one another, it is very likely impossible that the original Hebrews were black, were dark skinned people um, and that. Uh, Christianity was thriving and flourishing way before any kind of colonization happened on the continent of Africa mm-hmm. and that it has some of the most successful and flourishing churches to this day come from Ethiopia and Egypt. So mm-hmm. um, or the whole Ethiopian, which, which is which is now, um, I guess you can say Sudan, Egypt and, and Ethiopia, but um, the Nubian area. So. Yeah, it's just uh, I think and there's a lot of books out there and um, sometime towards the end of this, I'll kind of reference some of those books. I would have to run in my library and get them. Um, But, yeah, I think there are a lot of resources out there that 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 can help us gauge this conversation. When someone comes to you and says, um, yeah, Christianity is the white man's religion, 
um, what what usually is your process or to what what types of things do you say to them? First, I slap them, uh, <laughs> and then I'm like, I I apologize. I'm like, I was out of hand. <laughs> and then I'll say, I think there's 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 different there's there's two different things that that people most time people say it's a white man's religion because of what Christianity has become, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's the more intelligent argument, um, even though I think it's, it's deeply flawed, um, because any sensible person knows that anything that started in on the continent of Africa cannot be a white man's religion. And mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes, I think an educated individual will realize that Judeo Judeoism and Christianity, uh, obviously, which is the I guess you know the 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 maturation of uh, of Judeoism started on the continent of Africa. So it can't be a white man's religion. Um, even with the, uh, I guess you can say influence of, of, of Rome in, in Greece during that time, but it wasn't starting by the Romans and the Greeks. So that's my first thing is like, I try to take them back historically, uh, as, as, as best as I can to a conversation with, um, now, this is where it can kind of get debatable because this is where a, a lot of my Hebrew Israelite brothers will, I guess, part ways with me. Um, where you take up, you talk about the, 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 the table of nations in Genesis 10, you talk about who Shem is and who Ham is. And if we are looking at Ham, um, as, uh, kind of the, the father of, of what is known as modern Africa today and even, um, a lot of what is considered the Mideast, then we realize that all of Christianity took place on what is considered Hamitic territory or land. And so if that's the case, then we realize that off off jump that Christian, this is why I say Christianity is African uh, religion. Even there's even geographical evidence that's that that communicates that what is the Middle East and Egypt is on the same plate tectonics as the uh, as the rest of the continent of Africa. So we see that this is an African religion, and, and then I just take them to this different people, like the different fathers, the different um, influencers of of Christianity were 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 African individuals, and we talk about the the flourishing of churches. And a lot of times when we talk about church history, I think the problem is is what happens is we immediately go west and then we move north. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because of, you know, the individuals who are telling the stories today are mostly people who come from kind of the Constantinople kind of influence and the the Western European influence. But there were thriving movements um, in Asia. There were thriving movements in Iran. There were th- thriving movements in North Africa, whether it was Coptic, whether it was um, Nestorian, whether it was Jacobites. These are these are people that, you know, we don't really we don't really talk about and we don't really lend history to. And these are people who um, were more of uh, who were Eastern Orthodox or Eastern influenced in their religion and were thriving in the parts of uh, of the world that weren't, I guess you can say, whitewashed. And Mm -hmm. so it's a long it's a there's a long history. There's a lot of information out there. I am in no way. Uh, as I told you before, off air, I am no way an authority on these issues. I'm learning. Uh, there's a lot that I'm learning. But the problem is, is as, I, as I also told you offline, is that it's sad that I feel like I am close to being an authority 
and being so uh, new in the game because there's so few people who are dealing with this stuff. Mm-hmm. There are fo- so few people who are actually out there and who are willing to say, you know what, I'm I'm not really concerned. What it all boils down to, I, I think we're as African American culture, apart from even just this dialogue, when we talk about many different dialogues, we're just distracted. We're distracted with consistently trying to prove ourselves, our worth, our value to a mainstream culture. So if it's mainstream evangelicalism, we're so busy trying to get at the table of the Pipers and the Kellers and the D.A. Carstens and together for the Gospels that there's a contingency of people who have been doing great ministry already. Maybe they're not in the kind of like white mainstream evangelical world. But they've been doing great ministry. There's great theologians in our past. There's great storytellers in our past. But at the end of the day, there is no real network that we can we can go to and say, hey, what this says the Lord from our African-American brothers and sisters. And if there were more continuity in that and less and, and less of us being distracted, trying to get at the table of our white brothers and sisters for the approval of, of some sort of platform, I think there will be more. Uh, cohesive resources to address these issues. I agree. I want to say yes and amen to that (laughs) because you can fight all day to sit at the table, but there's a group of people who are being, um, being drawn away by these movements while we're trying to get a seat at the table. Um, My mom was just telling me she was um, some at at, at the um, salon salon and there's a barbershop and salon together and a guy that was um, a new Christian, he's now getting swept away in that movement. And he's talking about, you know, how someone came to him. And that just made me think of, of the conver- this conver- the conversations I've been having um, for Jude on this. With, um, with I had a conversation with DA a couple weeks ago and some other people. And this is an issue that a lot of people are ignoring, but it's becoming something that's really problematic in the African-American community. And it's been a problem. We just haven't really took the time to address it. It's extremely problematic. And like I said, a lot of it is easy. It's, it's easy stuff to refute. Um, you know, there's there's some more deep um, theological things that, you know, you would have to address when you get into uh, the refuting of. Well, I just think the basic question of white man's religion is one of the easiest things to address. Uh, now, um, why I believe what I believe over um, Hebrew Israelite or over something else, then yeah, that's that's going to take more uh, more thorough theological study. Um, but the other thing that a lot of these these religions and cults does that that I think is extremely scary is you know as a people we understand what white supremacy is and why it's extremely dangerous right Mm -hmm. but the problem is is a lot of these refutes are are basically answering supremacy with supremacy Mm -hmm. and if anybody knows that people can be jacked up I think uh, we know that like we know that look we know what it's like to use supremacy um, for uh to to demoralize, to rape, to 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 pillage people and and steal their dignity. And the, the problem is, is a lot of these religions and cults. What they'll do is they'll just take their own supremacy and answer and fight with against with white supremacy. And as if like brothers in Egypt and brothers in uh, Timbuktu and brothers in North Africa didn't have problems and like they weren't wicked in 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 
and spiteful individuals. We we're all desperate. I guess you could say depraved people who need the gospel of Jesus Christ, who need healing. Uh, and I guess the debate is what is that healing? What does that reformation and reconciliation look like? Because uh, a lot of these religions, they'll teach that the only the true people, which ultimately is kind of like the Asiatic man, the black man, are the only people who can receive salvation. Mm-hmm. And uh, and to me, that's that's a very dangerous and scary place to be. And the other thing is, is a lot of these folks can't even trace like you can't you can't even really trace your 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 heritage or lineage back to e- Egypt or 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 to uh, Israel. Um, so that's another thing that I'm like, uh, is you got to got to be very careful. And so now we're just going off of. Uh, off of a what and then the debate becomes what is blackness you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. so how black is black is it light-skinned black enough is it um is it kind of a racial does does all kind of (laughs) thing so it it becomes it becomes pretty interesting it has to be something more than just uh i guess you could say a blood test that requires us to be uh ingrained in the family of god yeah and and something too that i think it makes people susceptible to these cults and movements is there the confident nature. Um, they're oh, very confident. Um, they're very, they, they seem to know what they're talking about. Um, and I think that's something that we, um, we don't have a lot of times when, when we're dealing with just regular church members, a lot of people don't know what they believe and why they believe it. So when somebody steps to them and just starts talking fast and taking them to scripture you know, and then ask them questions, it kind of shakes them up a little bit. And then it's like, well, you know, I'm not even getting this kind of step by step teaching at my church. So now you're coming to me and you're confident and you're telling me and you're laying it all out for me and you know what you believe. Um, It just kind of it, it, it amazes them. And they're like, well, this dude knows what he's talking about. Um, when I was college, yeah, when I was in college, I remember this happened. I remember this brother who was uh, <laughs> an Egyptologist came to my door uh, and was just spitting knowledge at me, and I was just sitting there looking at this dude like I am so impressed right now. Like I am, <laughs> like because I think there's the there is the one when you, you just talk about African American men in general, uh, or we can even take it just as men in general. I think men want to feel like they belong to something that is that brings kind of like a, a, a certification to your manhood and then when you can sit and you can kind of be authoritative and speak authoritatively to an issue and to subject and then it gives you dignity not only in in kind of like in language and information but also in position a lot of these organizations they give them positional authority and so nation of islam you wonder why they 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 get these brothers in bow ties and, and suits and they put them on a corner and they say spit knowledge. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? It's Hebrew Israelites. They put the uniform, the, the uniformity, even though them joints look crazy. They, they put them in mm-hmm. uniform and they put them on a the corner and they say speak authoritatively. And I think a lot of us want that. We want to be dignified. We want to feel like we belong to something. And, the, and as you said, the, a lot of our issue is because churches make very palatable safe religious experiences for people that doesn't really challenge them that doesn't really require much of them and so when you don't require much of anybody there's no initiative people are going to do kind of like the least amount of work possible and so when you get confronted by individuals who are tenacious who who 
who feel uh, proud of the information that they have, you're going to get swallowed up and you're going to get intimidated and you're going to get ran over and uh, you're going to be impressed. And at some at some point, you're going to probably cross over. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just human nature. Um, and I think a lot of it is the fault of of the church is because we don't require much of people because at the end of the day, we just want people to be in proximity with us. As long as you come, that's good enough. Mm-hmm. And I think the I think Jesus was the total opposite. Jesus was like you who just want to be around, who want to just be a part of the drove. Every now and then I'm going to give you a nugget. I may even feed you, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but at the end of the day, there's a there's I want I want commitment and I want devotion from people. Mm-hmm. And I and I realize that true devotion is not going to come by mass numbers. I'm going to just get intimate with a few individuals and expect them to do great things. But I think we're so enamored, especially Western culture, we're so enamored by performance-driven, like, we, we want numbers, we want results. And oftentimes that, that comes with a business model of saying, what's the greatest impact I can give in the most efficient way? And if that's just getting a, 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 a few people in an attractional ministry-style model, then we're good. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it's very dangerous. It's a very dangerous because you get very shallow people. Mm-hmm. I look at the nation of Islam and what they require of men and women, and they're not changing from what well, I know. They're not changing their requirements or lowering the standard for people. But people are right. just moving up to the standard. They got to change their dress. They're going to change their dress and look, you know, presentable. Um, they're going to wear a suit and their bow tie. They're going to sell bean pies, whatever they have to do. And I think people want that kind of discipline when it comes to yeah. faith. Yeah, I think broken people anytime. I mean, especially in, in communities of brokenness, like people desire discipline, love. They they want kind of like that, that motherly uh, uh, nature, nurturing and nature. But they also want that fatherly kind of like assertiveness. So that they can say, hey, look, this is what's good. This is what's wrong. This is the direction. This is where you go. And um, I think a lot of churches are we're afraid to call people to great expectations and great things um, because I think we're afraid to lose business. We're, we're late. We're afraid to lose consumers. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you expect too much from a consumer, they'll just say, you know what? I'll just go to the next to the next operation. Um, and so a lot of these, a lot of these cults, that's, that's what they're doing. They're, they're set. And this is, I mean, I think oftentimes we could be a little over strategic as well. I mean, like we sit around and we think about what to do and how to do it for so long while at all, well, all the while, you know, people are being swept up. Um, so I do feel like it's a necessary apologetic. I feel like um, it's a beautiful thing. I think when I did my album Talent at 10th, a lot of the it's amazing. Just out of a, a couple lines in a, in a song, I would get so many, you know, just emails and I would get so many people who would reach out to me and just ask me questions. Um, and I realized that there were there were so few people who were addressing this issue and I was like, well, I got to get my game up because if I'm like, if I'm gonna be answering questions, if people are gonna be asking me questions, I gotta actually know what I'm talking about. And I often love not knowing what I'm talking about when I'm talking. So, but, at this point, <laughs> but I was like, for this, uh, this is this is quite important. And so that's why I've kind of dedicated time in my life to say, you know what, what, 
what are they teaching? What do I, uh, what, what can I, I guess, offer as healthy apologetics to a community of people who need it desperately? Because I know at the HBCUs, cats are just getting ate up. Mm-hmm. And especially in big, in big cities as well. So, yeah. How do you think, and I know you said we, with your, um, latest album, The Talented Tenth, was that your, that was your latest one, right? Yeah, that Talented. was the last one. Um, how do you think we can use art to, um, equip people and to engage the culture? Because I know, um, when we talk about the 5% movement and how they use hip hop to kind of, um, spread yeah. their message, how can, we do that with art, not just, I know, um, there's a movement of spoken word artists that are kind of doing that through, you know, spoken word. There's, you know, Christian hip hop to a certain degree. But I think you're, you're really, you did a really good job of doing it in your last album, addressing issues that faced, um, you know, African Americans, not just young people, but older, you know, kind of just the young professional how can we engage the culture um through art yeah i think that's a great question when you think about the nation of gods and earth like clarence 13x who was the founder kind of was a uh, someone said he was a student of uh, uh malcolm x's potential he was a student at his temple and then when he saw kind of like that the nation was losing its connection in touch with the young people he kind of broke off or he had broken off before that. But then he said, you know what, because we're not reaching the older generation, what we'll do is we'll reach the young folks. He, and you think about right? you think about any movement in history and especially what's happening now in the LGBT community and uh, a lot of uh, like the progressive movements, language and uh, and narrative is so important. Um, you give people a language and a narrative, they get to kind of like adapt it and own it. And then they start sharing it around one another and it becomes like somewhat of a, um, uh, a coded language that they use publicly so that they get to kind of like change how the world is even not only how they look at them, but how they communicate with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and because he had, he made it an intentional effort to address the young folks in, in Harlem and in New York, um, that naturally kind of like infused itself in what popular culture was doing right and so around this time not too many years later you get the hip-hop movement so now you get young you know young men and women who are part of this movement and their expressions artistically are going to be the things that you know that young people love engaging in and so you have uh the word is bond you got cypher you got build all these are all these are uh the science uh do your mathematics all these are are uh are terms and phrases that came from five percent movement um mm-hmm. and then so people like me who would love like you know poor righteous teachers rakim erica badu wu-tang and you reciting lyrics you didn't even know that you was you was spitting that science and doing their math you just thought you was just rapping lyrics mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's so dope because it was coded in a way that it didn't feel like um um, I'm, I'm preaching or I'm being indoctrinated, right? So they mm-hmm. were very savvy and slick with how they did it. But we all know when, when you strategically place, uh, like you, you, you strategically are teaching countercultural lessons within your music and within your art form and people subtly and slowly kind of like start to adapt. And then, you know, you, you start to kind of almost 
preach and accept this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So one thing about Christian music that I think, or well, I'll even say like um, uh, C.S. Lewis, who is one of my literary heroes, what he once said was he didn't necessarily create um, the Chronicles of Narnia so that people will become Christians, but what he wanted to do was to create uh, a visual or a literary depiction that was tantamount, I guess you could say, to Jesus in Aslan so that when people were presented with an idea of sacrifice and atonement for sins, that it wouldn't be this far-fetched idea mm-hmm. so that people had – so that children growing up were equated, uh, uh, acquainted with Aslan as this sacrificial uh individual who gave himself up for the benefit of other folks that when they heard the story of Jesus that they'll be easily relate they can easily relate and connect to that mm-hmm. in the same way I think that's a that's a that's a beautiful way to use art in a countercultural sense right mm-hmm. because people don't talk about sacrifice uh for the sake of others in mainstream culture and I think in the same sense I think Christian art can be an apologetic we don't necessarily have to say uh, be ex- totally explicit, but when you just communicate countercultural views in a very fresh, dope way, and those things are repeated, then when people are presented with the idea of marriage, well, we're talking about marriage. If you hear my songs, I, anytime I talk about relationships, I make an important effort to throw marriage in there. Now, mm-hmm. I don't want to just talk about. I don't want to talk about relationships just, just frivolously so that people will just hear me talk about a babe or a girl this is my girl this is my boo this is my thing my bae i want them to know when i'm talking about a young lady in a relationship she's my wife Mm -hmm. because i feel like a covenant relationship is important and then also that there's an idea of commitment so i'm communicating not only that i believe that marriage is uh something that is between a man and a woman that is something serious um but i'm i'm communicating commitment and that's these are these are things that that are quite countercultural in today's world, um, and so I think, in a sly, in a very sick, slick way, I think we we can do this, and we could be very, uh, I guess you could say, um, um, we could be like serpent doves in how we communicate and articulate our messages. And I think when you look at, and I and I brought up the LGBT community, you think about how they kind of got us all to believe in their narrative. They they remove the idea of they, they got us to, to stop thinking about homosexuality in a sexual way. Right? Mm-hmm. So we don't think about it in sexual. We just we think about it in uh, as biological because now it's uh, you're born with this thing. And it's not about sex. It's about companionship. And uh, <clears throat> and so now it's like. When you when you talk about homosexuality, it's, there's 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 almost like this biological scientific aspect to it that is not even like when you really think about it is this is not even proven, but we all kind of like accept it as normal normative narrative because they've done such a great job of being collectively conscious in how they communicate their agenda. Mm-hmm. I think in the same sense when we as Christians. When we're communicating, I think we have to be somewhat postmodern. And so we can't continue to have Christian arguments and Christian conversations in a postmodern world that doesn't care about our Christian conversations and theology. So how do we have kind of like very innovative and uh, and uh, thoughtful discussion on how to infuse our philosophies, our thoughts, our doctrines, our theologies, our, our, our narrative in a world that's that's kind of like 
past the idea that there's even a God like that, you know, mm-hmm. so now we have to start to debate what is good for culture. Is this even good for culture? Because ultimately, when we destruct idols, it's, it's going to lead people back to the question of, OK, why is this important? And ultimately, hopefully, if we ask enough whys, then it's going to lead to the need for uh, a ultimate truth. And we believe that ultimate truth to be God. So. Um, and I just feel like a lot of artists don't do that. Um, a lot of artists struggle with doing it. I think one is it's much easier just to be very, um, I guess you could say it's, it's, it's much easier to just lay out the message in a way that is going to be accepted and palatable for youth groups and for uh, church movements. Um, but then the other thing it's you'll find is it could be almost just as easy to get swallowed up in culture. And then what you'll do is you'll just make music that has no real depth to it. And it mm-hmm. really says nothing. And so what it sounds like is just like, well, just very positive music that doesn't call women, you know, hoes and bees. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you don't want either one of the uh, what. Well, if you're uh, talking about you're an artist who's engaging culture now if you're an artist who's just explicitly making music for the church i think it's it's important to, to be very explicitly christian in your music and be very detailed in your doctrine and your theology but i'm talking about people who are creating an apologetic for uh the world and who are trying to be uh cultural engagers i guess you can say uh, but i'm also not saying don't say jesus one but what i am saying is how you present and talk about jesus can't be uh, absent of this idea that we live in a postmodern world. So hope that makes sense. Amen. Well, I know you got to go show. Uh, what is the last word you want to leave with our listeners? I don't know, man. It's a, it's a lot. I felt like I was, this is a great conversation. I feel like it's one of those conversations you can have a million different times in a million different ways. But at the end of the day, um, I thank you guys for being courageous enough to do what you do. I think it's necessary. I think it's needed. Um, I would say to the listener, I think one of my biggest tensions with uh, the state of the, uh, I guess you can say the, the African-American church today is that we need to begin to consider how do we develop and manage our own narrative. Um, uh, I think we have many of sociologists in our day uh, in our history whether it's Du Bois or whether it's Carter G. Woodson who talk about a people without history and uh, who talk about the importance of understanding black consciousness but I think what's happening is is we've been so engaged in trying to dignify ourselves in the the narrative of uh, mainstream evangelicalism that we've forgotten that um who we were we don't celebrate our own authors we don't celebrate our own pastors of history uh we don't we haven't created our own narrative hence why there's not a lot of black uh apologetics out there and so at some point if we don't become forward thinking if we, of our own narrative and all then we're going to find ourselves behind the ball and so far behind the loop that it's going to be hard to catch up to a world that is so anti-Christian, that is so anti-church, that we'll just be sitting around twiddling our thumbs, arguing about stuff that doesn't really even matter anymore. So, 
Amen. Well, thank you so much, show. Um, I definitely appreciate it. Thank you for having me, and God bless y'all, and uh, blessings and prosperity to to your work. Amen. Well, thank you for listening to another edition of the Jude Three Project podcast. Um, as always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. Check out our blog. Um, subscribe to us on iTunes by searching Jude Three Project. Follow us on Twitter at Jude Three Project, on Instagram at Jude Three Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Jude Three Project. And remember, at the Jude Three Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.